Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Simon Lester. I'm a trade policy analyst at the Herbert Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for uh, coming out today. Thanks to those of you watching on the internet and also, as I understand it, C-SPAN too. We have what I think will be a very interesting and informative policy forum for you today on removing online barriers to med medical care. This is sometimes referred to as telemedicine or telehealth. I expect to learn a lot from this forum myself. Uh, I've written only about a very narrow aspect of the issue. I've written about how international trade agreements address it. Basically what happened was this. I was following the Canada-EU trade negotiations, and I saw in uh, one of the legal texts they released that Germany had explicitly excluded telemedicine from its liberalization commitments. They were saying, we're not going to liberalize in this area. As a free trader, this offended me, it annoyed me, and so I wrote a paper sort of in response to that saying, actually, in trade negotiations, uh, governments should affirmatively try to liberalize cross-border trade in medical services. But I realized that if I, if I were to hold a policy forum just on the trade aspect of it, it would be hard to fill my own office, much less this big auditorium, so I decided to broaden the topic a bit and talk about telemedicine more generally and invite some real experts on the issue, and uh, those are the gentlemen to the left and the right of me. So I think we'll all benefit from their knowledge of the issue. This is a new topic for many people, so I think it's probably best to start with the basics and then get into some of the nuances as we, as we go along. So here is the issue in its most basic form. For most people, medical care is still something that always takes place in a, in a doctor's office or in a hospital. Uh, we've all had this experience. You go around to the doctor's office, you wait a bit. They have these 1970s-era paper forms. You fill those out. You wait some more, then they take you to another room, and you wait again. It's, it's pretty annoying. Um, but what if, instead of that, you could just take out your smartphone and place a Skype call to a doctor, go do some other things, get some lunch, maybe go to a policy forum, and when the doctor's available, you have your online consultation right over the phone. Obviously, I'm not talking about surgery here, but just routine consultations. It sounds very convenient. Well, it's actually being done, although I haven't done it myself. Um, the problem is, in the highly regulated area of medical care, there are lots of regulatory hurdles that get in the way. And there are a number of startup companies that are trying to break them down. Um, but it's, it's not easy, and it's been a struggle. So our first panelist, Renee Kwashi, is going to give us an overview of this emerging industry, uh, the regulatory uh, regulatory barriers that they face and efforts, ongoing efforts to address these barriers. Renee is a senior counsel at the law firm of Epstein, Becker, and Green, focusing on healthcare policy. I came across Renee's name when I was reading an Economist article about these issues where he was quoted. I feel like that's always a good sign that you're doing something right when the Economist is quoting you. Uh, we're then going to turn to Jeff Rose at the end there, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, which does a lot of great work. Jeff is bringing a fascinating case on behalf of a Texas veterinarian who was fined by his state's medical board for offering veterinary advice online. Among other things, this case involves important issues of free speech. Uh, and although it involves a veterinarian, it potentially has larger implications for the practice of medicine more generally on human beings. Uh, Jeff is going to give us the background of this case, tell us about its current status and its prospects. And then finally, we have Josh Sharfstein, uh, who's an actual doctor. It's nice to have one of those on a panel uh, talking about health issues. Uh, but he's not just a doctor. He's also a policy wonk and a former high-ranking government official dealing with health care matters. He is currently an associate dean and professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Before that, he was deputy commissioner at the FDA and the secretary of health for the state of Maryland. 
Josh, I suspect, although I don't know exactly what he'll, he'll say, will be maybe the voice of caution here, saying, hold on there, you free market-loving libertarians. We can't just throw out all the regulations here. We, we, need, we, need, we need some regulations in place. So each of our panelists is going to speak for about 12 to 15 minutes. Then we'll open it up to the audience for, for questions. Um, one thing to mention is if anyone has any cell phones, please turn them off. Um, with that, let me turn it over now to Renee, who will get us started. Thank you very much. By way of disclosure, um, even though, um, yeah, even though Simon uh, did introduce me, um, I do represent a lot of telemedicine stakeholders, hospitals, health systems, health plans, some of the leading telemedicine companies. So some of my comments may be skewed in that direction. Let me see. So I've got a quick PowerPoint we're going to go through here. One of the things that I always start with is definitional. Telemedicine, telehealth, they're used interchangeably. As you can see, some of the major stakeholders can't even agree on what it means. For example, Medicare has a very restrictive uh, definition of, um, they use the word telehealth, which involves two-way real-time interactive communication. So no storing forward, it has to be audio-visual. Um, so, I, I put this up there just to show you that we can't even agree on a definition of what we're talking about. We can't even agree on the terms. I see somebody here from the American Telemedicine Association. They use the term telemedicine. Others use telehealth. For me, when I'm talking about these issues, I really look at it very broadly. To me, it's just a delivery of health-related care, services, education, and information via telecommunications technology. That's it. Very simple for me. And these are some of the usages of telemedicine, as you can see. Um, we'll get into some of this a little bit later, uh, I'm sure, during the question and answer session. These are really the, th the, uh, the sort of the three telemedicine modalities. Now, some folks will tell you or will say that remote patient monitoring is separate and apart. And I think Gary and I have talked about this before. They consider remote patient monitoring separate and apart from telemedicine and not part of telemedicine. But I just wanted to give you a flavor that we're, there's a complexity here that we really need to pay attention to. We've talked about real time. They're stored forward where digital images and audio files are stored. Uh, sent to a provider who can look at them at some later point. There's really no interactive communication between patient and doctor. Remote patient monitoring is exactly what it sounds like. You monitor patients digitally across distances, and providers um, get information and can intercede at any point during that process. So some of the th what is driving the issue? What is driving the discussion of telehealth and telemedicine? I will tell you that I've been practicing law for 17 years. And this is, I think, for the last two years, the first time where I feel as if telemedicine and telehealth have arrived. What's driving some of this? Part of this is the aging population. We're supposed to reach almost 370 million people by 2030. But I think even more important than that is the percentage of those folks that are going to be 65 and over, almost a fifth of the population. Obviously, the older you are, the older your population, the more health-related issues you're going to have. Do we have the capacity to take care of our aged populations in addition to all the other things we need to do in the system? This is also coupled with the fact that a lot of folks are predicting a shortage of physicians. You see here um, almost 65,000 by next year is going to uh, double by 2025. So you've got an increasing population, increasing share of aged population, plus you've got this shortfall of physicians. 
Um, you also have a healthcare system that's really in a transition from a fee-for-service environment where payers pay for service per encounter to one that I will call income for outcome, where your payment, your reimbursement is really based on healthcare outcomes, quality, metrics. Um, we're in that transitional phase right now with all the attendant problems that everybody has read about. And also technology. Uh, the sophistication of a lot of the health technology that exists today is incredible, incredible. And the question is, can our healthcare system absorb, pay for, and adequately manage the risk of all this new technology? And that's part of the reason we're here. Now, in terms of the telehealth market overview, um, these numbers are all over the map. But what I can tell you is uh, most Financial researchers, most economists are very bullish on this market. Uh, BCC research predicts that the global telehealth market is going to reach 28 billion by 2017. Global health data does one better and says it's going to be about 33 billion by 2018. Berg Insights estimates that we're going to be at 22 billion by 2020. And IHS predicts in the United States that we're going to be in the neighborhood of about 500 million um, by next year. Towers Watson, which is one of the leading um, employer, employee benefits uh, firms, says the use of telehealth could result in $6 billion a year in health savings across the board for U.S. companies. Just to give you a flavor of what's happening. We've already talked a little bit about the, 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 the landscape that's changing. We've talked about the, the, the transition from a fee-for-service environment to one in which we're really, really paying attention to outcome the benefits of telemedicine. So what are some of the legal and regulatory issues that we face? I think the first one we always talk about is licensure, and I'll talk about it for about five minutes, um, uh, because I think it's an important issue in that I think there's some ready-made solutions that some folks are attempting. Um, the other thing, too, about licensure is we tend to look at it from the physician perspective, but there are a lot of mid-level and other providers uh, that we also have to consider. Scope of practice, which I'll talk about very briefly, and how physician-patient relationships are established, and why those requirements may be a barrier, although some states are taking care of that in their own way. Coverage and reimbursement, it runs the gamut from very restrictive payment uh, approaches by Medicare. Um, to a mixed bag in Medicaid, to a better overall picture for private payers. Um, we probably won't touch on, on the rest of this, given my limited number of time. So let's just talk about licensure. I think the piece you really need to understand here is licensure follows the patient. So there are medical practice acts all over the United States that govern what constitutes the practice of medicine. If somebody is practicing medicine, they need to be licensed in the state. What state did they need to be licensed in if you got a physician in one location and a patient who's out of state? In the United States, it's where the patient is located. And so you can see how this impacts telemedicine. If you've got a duly licensed physician in Pennsylvania, for example, who's providing online care or telecare to somebody in North Dakota, they need to be licensed in North Dakota unless they meet a number of exceptions. And we're going to talk about some of these solutions that have uh, been developed recently. Uh, this has been a long-standing barrier. Um, and one of the reasons I think it vexes people is that if you really think about healthcare in the United States, although there are some local differences, I think for the most part, a lot of the core requirements are the same across the board. 
Um, the doctors practicing in California, doctors practicing in Florida, especially if you're practicing in urban areas, is there really a difference between the practice of medicine in Miami, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago? That's a question that needs to be addressed. Um, there are some uh, exceptions um, to obtaining a full regular license. I talk about uh, some of these here, a special telemedicine license. We talk, uh, there's a consultation exception as well, which we don't need to get into. Um, but those uh, exceptions usually don't resolve the overall issue of having to obtain licensure in a number of states. The Federation of State Medical Boards, which is the organization that represents 70 state and osteopathic medical boards across the country, has come up with a medical licensure compact that only applies to physicians. And basically, it's a system by which licensure portability is made a little easier, um, depending on whether or not a state is a part of the compact. So for all states that are part of the compact, being licensed in one compact state makes it easier to get a license in another compact state so you can practice. Problem here is you still have to apply. It's not like a nurse licensure compact where you're dean licensed. Um, and there's some other issues uh, with the licensure compact. So far, I think six states have signed on officially onto the compact and are part of the compact. According to the Federation of State Medical Boards, they need seven to make this work, so we're almost there. And I think another 15 have bills in various uh, stages um, of the legislative process. So you could see 10 to 11 um, states be members of the compact by the end of this year. Um, so you'll get this going. So this is one um, stakeholder's uh, attempt to address the licensure issue. The other big issue I see, oh, before we go on, I should talk about non-physician licensure. Compacts are being developed for nurse practitioners, physician assistants. The nurses already have their licensure compact, which I think 24 states are a member of. But interestingly enough, for the nurse licensure compact, the big states are not members. Texas, California, Florida are not members of that compact. So it limits the utility of the nurse licensure compact. The other issue I really quickly touch on is uh, scope of practice. How do, a physician-patient relationship is established. The one thing here I want to emphasize is that in order for a physician-patient relationship to be established, among other things, most states require some kind of examination of the patient. What constitutes an examination varies from state to state. Um, in a lot of states, a, an in-person examination of that patient is required. As you can imagine, in a telemedicine encounter, that may be difficult. Some states have seen fit to pass statutes which allow that examination to occur by telemedicine, meaning if you can get the same information that you can get in a telemedicine encounter that you would get in an in-person encounter, those states say, that's fine. Um, the problem is we have not yet developed enough uh, peripheral and diagnostic technology uh, to make those examinations um, to facilitate those kinds of examinations yet. Um, and so what we see a lot of, or what I see a lot of, is folks providing uh, telemedicine services without actually doing any examination. There's a video connection with that particular patient, and a lot of folks are, are concluding that that's enough. That really doesn't constitute an examination by telemedicine. Now. The Federation of State Medical Boards, again, came up with a model policy 
uh, for the appropriate use of telemedicine technologies um, that sought to loosen some of the restrictions um, involved in the practice of telemedicine. And one of the things they talked about was the examination issue and really leaving that up to the physician. Let the physician decide whether or not they have enough information to continue the relationship to diagnose and treat. Uh, unfortunately, unlike the nurse licensure compact, the FSMB model policy sort of exists in the ether. I think some state medical boards have sought fit to adopt um, some or all of this, but there's really not a lot of energy behind um, passage um, of the FSMB model policy. I will say a lot of other stakeholders have developed um, incredible protocols. I know that the American Telemedicine Association has an accreditation program for direct-to-consumer care. Um, the American Medical Association is developing their own set of protocols. So there's a lot of activity in the space that's occurring right now. The other thing I want to talk about before I leave is reimbursement. Um, this is a particularly vexing issue at the federal level. I should tell you that under the Medicare telehealth benefit, I think just a little under $14 million was paid out last year, last calendar year. This is out of $615 billion in reimbursed, total reimbursements last year. I think that represents 0.0023% of the total. So basically, Medicare doesn't really pay for, for telehealth. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first being that the approach taken by Medicare is that this is really for people in the most rural of counties in the United States. So that's the first restriction. There are only certain kinds of providers that can actually provide services and be paid under this benefit. The patient has to present at a certain kind of facility. The patient cannot be in the home, for example, and receive services and have the professionals be paid under this. And then the last thing is only certain codes are paid for. So if you look at the codes, there seems to be a trend towards assessment and evaluation and psychological and psychiatric services. There seems to be a trend towards having those kinds of services reimbursed as opposed to others. Obviously, there's a bias that telemedicine is really not suited or suitable for non-urgent primary care purposes. Medicaid's a little different. Most Medicaid programs, and as you know, Medicaid has more flexibility to decide what services they will and will not cover. Uh, Medicaid, most Medicaid programs cover telehealth or telemedicine in some form, but the coverage requirements vary state by state. Some of them follow the Medicare very restrictive rules. Some are more um, liberal on the issue. Um, a few cover re remote patient monitoring. Um, a few cover store and forward. Um, the, there's no uniformity. Uh, really, there's no logic to what states can and will cover. Um, I think this could change, especially as Medicaid programs come under increasing fiscal pressure. Private payers, the private payer world is probably in a better spot a number of states, and Gary, you can correct me if I'm wrong, almost half the states now have statutes in place that require private payers to pay for telemedicine services if those same services are covered if provided in person. So basically, states are forcing private payers to cover telehealth and telemedicine. Um, the definition of telehealth and telemedicine and what is covered varies um, state by state. Also, they don't mandate the same reimbursement levels. I should caution you on that. Um, but the private payer um, approach, I think, is a little bit better than you have with the public payers. The other thing, too, is even in states that don't have these statutes in place, what we find is a lot of 
private payers see a benefit in providing these services, whether they're required or not. And I've listed here some, uh, some, some plans that, none of them are clients, um, some plans that are known as being progressive about telehealth and telemedicine services. And I'll leave you with that, and I will finish up by saying that the one other aspect to really, really pay attention to in the coming years is employers. A lot of employers are very, uh, in, um, they're encouraged by what they see and the value they see in telehealth and telemedicine. There's the impending Cadillac tax that's coming in 2018. Um, and we can talk about that at some point, maybe during Q&A. But employers seem to be incentivized to really look at telehealth and telemedicine as a way to control the cost of their employees. Thank you, Renee. That's a great introduction to the issue. Um, let me turn it over now to Jeff, who's going to take us through a case study of uh, on actual, what, what happens when you actually provide telemedicine services online. Sure. Okay, thanks. And um, thanks, Renee. So one of the reasons why telemedicine presents such a challenge is because medicine is a vivid illustration of a peculiar reality in America, which is Everything is forbidden unless it is expressly permitted. So this amazing, interesting, fresh innovation comes along, and all the medical boards say, well, you can't do that. We need to write 10,000 regulations to be able to do it. We have to completely subdue it with the regulatory process because, after all, this is America. If we don't have a telemedicine statute, you can be certain of one thing. You better not be doing it. And in part, that's because we have a 19th century or early 20th century regulatory model. We have 50 different states, each with their own regulatory boards, and that doesn't even take into account the fact that Americans can now talk to people all over the world. There are billions of people who would benefit from the expertise of well-educated Americans, and it's completely unclear whether or not they can get it. Now, the thing about telemedicine is that, at bottom, it's just two people talking to each other. That's it. People are talking to each other. One person wants some knowledge that another person has, and they want to share it. Now, at least by reputation, we live in a free country. So what does the First Amendment, uh, the free speech clause in particular, have to say about that? And this turns out to be a really interesting and one of the most important unsettled questions in constitutional law. So let me begin by telling you a story. Imagine, uh, and this is a true story, imagine a group of Scottish missionaries go to rural Nigeria and a married couple finds a stray cat, and they think, we're going to adopt the stray cat. But there are no veterinarians in rural Nigeria. There's no pet food in rural Nigeria. But one thing they have is a cell phone tower. And so these missionaries can get on the internet. Now, go all the way around the planet, and you'll find Ron Hines. He is a retired, physically disabled, Texas-licensed veterinarian. He has a PhD in biology. Um, he spent his career working um, with exotic animals at a research facility uh, here in Maryland. He worked at SeaWorld. He was in private practice. Um, he's just an amazing veterinarian who, after he retired, because his disabilities made it impossible for him to continue to work, he still wanted to be able to help animals. So one day, he and the missionaries in rural Nigeria start writing emails to each other about what to do about the cat. How, how should we feed the cat? How can we make sure that this cat stays healthy? It was a stray cat. What are the things we should be looking out for? So Ron and the, and the missionaries are, are exchanging emails. And Ron starts doing this with some other people too, mostly for free, um, although occasionally he would charge people a flat fee of a couple of bucks um, just to sort of help him cover the cost of keeping his website going. He never made any, any money doing it. Um, so what has just transpired? 
a disabled 70-year-old man in Texas writes an email to a Scottish missionary about a cat in Nigeria. That's a crime. And Ron Hines had his veterinary license suspended. He was fined. He was forced to retake a portion of the veterinary licensing exam. And he had to shut down his website and stop doing it. And why is that? Because under Texas law, you have to physically examine the animal before you can offer any opinion about it. So this housebound, phys physically disabled veterinarian was supposed to get on an airplane and fly to Nigeria before he could offer an opinion of any kind about this cat. And never mind that there are no veterinarians and the cat would be completely without medical care or, or veterinary care without Ron. And you know, Ron wasn't prescribing medication. He wasn't sending drugs. He was just offering an opinion. That's it. Two people talking to each other. So what does the First Amendment have to say about that? Because after all, the First Amendment is supposed to protect the right of Americans and uh, of which Ron Hines is an American, and indeed anybody subject to American jurisdiction, generally speaking, to be able to have useful conversations about the world. Well, we brought a First Amendment lawsuit, and the trial court, the federal trial court, said, you know what, you're right. The First Amendment applies. Uh, the state of Texas tried to get it dismissed on the ground that when two people talk to each other, if that conversation is subject to occupational licensing, the conversation is by definition physical conduct. So if Ron Hines writes an email that says, you know, you should try to, you know, maybe feed your cat some shredded pork or something like that. The law treats that as though Ron Hines is taking a scalpel and cutting a hole in the animal. They say by definition it is conduct even if it's just words. And so the First Amendment doesn't apply at all. It's not that the First Amendment applies and you happen to lose under whatever First Amendment balancing test there is. It's that it doesn't apply at all. So the, the federal trial court said, you know what, the First Amendment applies to this. After all, this is just two people speaking. So then the, the state of Texas asked for a special kind of appeal, and we went up to the Federal Court of Appeals. And the, in March, the Federal Court of Appeals reversed. And they said, you know what? We disagree with the trial court. Um, we are going to call that conduct. If you are speaking and you are giving someone individualized personal advice, we're going to call that conduct. So what's going on? Well, what's going on here is the collision between two venerable constitutional doctrines. One is that state governments have broad authority to license occupations. That is well established in the law. We challenge it all the time at IJ. It leads to all kinds of irrational barriers to entry. One of the reasons why medicine and other kinds of professions are expensive and hard to get into is because lobbyists aggressively create all kinds of um, occupational barriers. But anyway, set that aside. The Supreme Court has said states have broad latitude. The Supreme Court has also said that the, the protections of the First Amendment are broad. And so what happens when those two things intersect? Well, the Supreme Court had an interesting case um, several years ago that was about advice to foreign terrorists. And some American doctors and physicians were providing individualized technical advice to foreign terrorist groups about how to resolve their grievances nonviolently. One was um, the... Um, uh, Kurdish liberation movement, and another one was the Tamil, uh, Tamil liberation movement in Sri Lanka. And so the, the, these groups were concerned about being prosecuted by the federal government for providing individualized advice, which the, which the federal government considered to be material support to terrorist groups. And so the question that went up to the Supreme Court was, is individualized advice that consists of nothing but speech, you're not sending them money or guns or bombs or anything, you're just talking to them about the law. Is that something protected by the First Amendment? And the Supreme Court said, yes, the First Amendment applies. Now, it turns out that the, government has a, the federal government has a huge interest in suppressing 
um, advice to terrorists because it's just kind of fungible. That just frees up resources for terrorists to do other things. But the First, but the first Amendment applies. So we actually tried to take that precedent, and we said to you know we said to the federal court in the Fifth Circuit, we said, look, if the First Amendment at least applies to individualized technical technical advice to murderous foreign terrorists, surely it applies to this utterly harmless disabled veterinarian in Texas who's just talking to somebody about a cat. And the court said, no, no. Here's another interesting case about the First Amendment uh, that's also from a few years ago, U.S. v. Stevens, which involved uh, what are called animal crush videos. And so there are people out there, um, perhaps, uh, you know, probably not anybody in this room, but there are people out there who like to exchange videos about animals getting tortured. And that provides them with sexual titillation. And so the question that the Supreme Court addressed is whether or not the First Amendment applies to a statute that restricts um, communication in the form of animal crush videos. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? This is America. This might be repugnant speech, but the First Amendment applies to repugnant speech. And so the First Amendment applies to animal crush videos. And so what does this mean for Ron Hines, the veterinarian in Texas? Well, what it means is if he decided that he wanted to talk to Kurdish terrorists about how to, like, let's say they have a herd of cattle or something like that, and they're using that herd of cattle um, to sort of support their fighters or something, he could talk to them about that. And the First Amendment would apply to that conversation if he were to be prosecuted by the federal government for providing material support to terrorists. Now, if Ron Hines also wanted to exchange animal crush videos with Scottish missionaries in rural Nigeria, the First Amendment would apply to animal crush videos. But according to the Fifth Circuit, the First Amendment doesn't apply if Ron Hines is actually just trying to help an animal. So if he wants to help terrorists or he wants to trade fetish videos, no problem. But if he just actually wants to sit down and talk to somebody to help their animal, nope, no First Amendment protection. So this is actually um, a big issue. The federal courts of appeal disagree about the extent to which the First Amendment applies. So we have a case from the early 2000s in California. It's Conant v. Walters that involved medical marijuana. And this was before the, California at that point, I think, had said that medical marijuana would be OK, that physicians could prescribe it. But it's still, as it is now, it's actually still illegal under federal law. And so doctors have a controlled substances license from the Drug Enforcement Agency to be able to prescribe drugs. And it turned out that this, there, you know, there are a group of doctors who wanted to be able to say to their patients, look, I'm not going to prescribe marijuana for you. I can't do that. But I'm going to tell you that actually in your case, I think there's a valid medical reason for using marijuana. So it was just a, it's just a conversation between a doctor and a patient. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said, you know what? The First Amendment protects that conversation and that the Drug Enforcement Agency can't pull your controlled substances license just because you're a doctor having a conversation with a patient about medical marijuana, as long as you're not illegally prescribing it, because the First Amendment applies even to doctor-patient communications. That should have been a good case for us. And in fact, we cited it extensively um, in the Fifth Circuit. But on the, on the other end of the um, country, in the Eleventh Circuit, there's a case that's going on right now that's sometimes called the Glocks versus Docks case, which is about guns. And some gun rights activists got a law passed in Florida that forbade physicians from asking their patients about whether they own guns, whether they keep guns loaded. You know, sometimes you go to the doctor and the doctor might say, you know, as part of a checkup, might say, you know, you're wearing your seatbelt or, you know, because accidents actually, you know, kill people. And, and accidental gun discharges or, you know, suicide by gun, those are, you know, legitimate public health issues. So anyway, 
uh, the gun lobby didn't like the fact that some doctors were asking people about guns and they thought it was an invasion of privacy, so they got a law passed that said doctors aren't allowed to ask people about guns. And so, of course, uh, a group of doctors brought a lawsuit and said, look, the First Amendment protects my right to have a conversation with, with a patient. And that just because we're in a um, doctor-patient relationship doesn't mean that we have completely surrendered our free speech rights and the government can tell us to say and do whatever we want. Now, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said, nope, when a doctor is having a conversation with a patient, even if it is just a conversation, you're not touching them, you're not doing anything, that is conduct to which the First Amendment doesn't apply. Now, you may notice that the medical marijuana issue is kind of a liberal issue, right? And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on the, on the West Coast, kind of a liberal court. And on that liberal issue, the liberal court decided that the First Amendment applied. Now, the Eleventh Circuit's kind of a conservative court. And this was like a pro-gun thing. And, wow, coincidentally, the kind of conservative court decided that the First Amendment didn't apply when it was a conservative issue. But we have a square disagreement among the federal courts of appeal, um, a disagreement that was exacerbated by the decision in the vet speech case that just came down. And so the Supreme Court actually has to step in. And the Supreme Court is going to have to decide whether or not the First Amendment applies when there is a conflict between occupational licensing and free speech. And um, so we're in the process right now of, of writing our petition to the Supreme Court in the vet speech case. And this is actually the perfect case. Because what's going on here is you have Ron Hines, talking to people, generally speaking, on the other side of the world about animals. That's it. They're exchanging emails about animals. So this isn't even like, you know, the most intense telemedicine context you can imagine. This is right at the edge. And so if the First Amendment is ever going to apply to protect the free speech rights of licensed professionals and their clients, then it is going to apply in the context of Ron Hines' case. And this is the perfect, clean case for the Supreme Court to take. Now, and the other thing, too, is that there, there are some cases making their way through the, the court system right now that have to do with what's called reparative therapy, which is providing psychological counseling, generally speaking, to minors who, um, who uh, are gay or say they're gay and their parents don't like it, and so they send them usually to Christian-based psychologists. And there's a movement that says, well, the First Amendment should protect the right of therapists to engage in gay conversion therapy. Um, now, one of the great things about the Ron Hines case is that it is just about people talking about animals. It's not about gay rights. It's not about guns. It's not about medical marijuana. It's not about any of these hot-button cultural issues. It presents the case perfectly in a benign context where the Supreme Court can address the First Amendment question without worrying about making collateral statements that might have ramifications in other areas of the law. So. Um, fingers crossed, we're going to try to get the Supreme Court to take the case, and perhaps this time next year we'll get a decision from the Supreme Court that will tell us whether or not and to what extent the First Amendment applies to occupational licensing, and this will have implications far beyond the practice of veterinary medicine. It will be regular medicine. It will be psychology. It will be law. It will be financial advice, all kinds of things that can be done through a distance as a result of the Internet. So thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, it, it's a fascinating case, and I, I will keep following it, and I wish you uh, the best of luck with it. Thank I'm you. hoping for a Supreme Court decision to, you know, to, hoping it goes a certain way, but even if it doesn't, it's something, something fun to talk about. So um, let's go to our last speaker now, Josh Sharstein, and I'll turn it over to Josh. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the chance to be here. I appreciate the invitation from uh, Simon, and I thought both of the presentations were terrific. Really interesting. I'm a little bit in the, the Sesame Street uh, segment where they say which one doesn't belong, and you're supposed to pick it out. That's me a little bit on this panel. I'm a physician, not a lawyer, unlike the other three panelists. I'm 
been appointed uh, to city, state, and federal uh, positions by uh, Democrats. Um, and so I'm coming from a slightly different perspective. I do appreciate that um, Cato's uh, internet password is Obamacare saves lives. I'm, I'm just true. kidding. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. I thought that was changed just for me. Now it's just a little, little joke there. Okay, so um, I, um, I actually started reading Simon's paper, and I was like, I don't think there's going to be a thing in here that I find attractive. And I just found the paper absolutely fascinating and interesting and provocative. And I thought that both of these presentations were also very interesting. And um, there's a lot uh, to agree with about the points that have been made. And let me just say that, you know, for me, um, telemedicine kind of struck home when I was visiting a, a rural hospital, and they showed me a ward where the patients were being entirely managed by a remote team of physicians. So there were, you know, it was, it was intensive monitoring. It wasn't like your phone calling a doctor and showing them your rash. It was a hospitalized you know, situation, and I, I'd never seen anything like that before. And they go, well, actually, there's a doctor watching all the monitors. And there's, we have one nurse or a couple nurses here that will get a call from that doctor if there's an issue that they need to go check on. It's better than if the doctor were asleep down in the hall. And I thought, you know, is this a good thing? Is this not a good thing? I just sort of couldn't get my, my head around it. And what's the best way to regulate it? And I think that when it comes to telemedicine, it's a similar question as is in a lot of things, which is, what is regulation? Is regulation sort of red tape? protectionism that hurts consumers and just keeps things from happening that would save lives? Or is regulation necessary to prevent exploitation of patients and consumers and, and protect the public health? And the answer oftentimes, having worked at different levels of government, is yes. It's both. And there's no simple one or the other. And it depends how well it's done. Um, and the key is figuring out how to strike the right balance. In this case, I would say that you see with professional boards, there absolutely is protectionism out there. My last job, I was uh, responsible for more than 20 professional boards of different kinds. And I was called on to mediate when the doctors and the nurses fought or the nurses and the dentists. Uh, there was a huge fight in Maryland between the physical therapists and the um, acupuncturists over dry needling. Dry needling is what physical therapists want to do, but acupuncturists say that that's unlicensed practice of acupuncture. And they, um, I decided at one point to do a public comment period. And usually in Maryland, we do public comment period. We do like 100 comments. It's a lot. And I got over 1,000 comments on all sides of the issue, very revved up. I picked up my eight-year-old from school, and he said, you know, Dad, what's dry needling? And I said, why do you ask that, Isaac? And he said, well, because my gym teacher gave me this letter to give to you. <laughs> so um, just I used to say that uh, it's not a safe place to be between the dry needlers and the acupuncturists. But that's the spot I was in. And at one point, I actually proposed legislation in the state of Maryland that would take these scope of practice disputes out of the medical boards and all the litigation, give them to a, uh, give the ability for the legislature, just the ability for the legislature to appoint a committee to resolve it in the public interest. And the line out the door of all the lobbyists who, who were testifying against that bill uh, was an image that I will keep in my mind. Nobody wanted that. They just wanted to battle it out. 
So I do, I absolutely concur that there are, um, you cannot assume that just because a medical board or a dental board or a different board has a particular policy that it's going to be the right thing for the public interest. The flip side is they do provide very important public health protections. And um, particularly when people are sick, they're not your economics 10 well-informed consumers. People who are sick are very vulnerable. There is an unbelievable um, record in the United States of people getting taken advantage of when they're most vulnerable, when they're sick, you know, fraudulent cures, things that hurt them. Um, and it is very much the case that, that medical boards, for example, protect the public for, against uh, physicians who are uh, quite dangerous, um, as do the other boards. And uh, I used to interview, I, I interviewed all the medical board candidates, and we set up a process for interviewing all the other candidates. And I said, like, I only have two questions. Number one, will you put the public interest first, even if it's about, you know, people out, if there are people out there who shouldn't be practicing, it is your job to get them out of circulation and to make sure you're protecting the public. And number two, will you be reasonable on scope of practice issues? Because, you know, the, the fights that happened were just... Uh, totally um, all-consuming when they happened. So how do you draw the balance when you have regulation like this? You know, if you're not going to be someone who just thinks all regulation is wrong, and if you're not going to be someone who thinks all regulation is right, and you're going to say, look, there's some things that make sense and some things that don't, how do you do it? How do you maximize the benefit and minimize the risk of a regulatory approach? And the answer is you have to set up an approach, a process that has the public interest as the bottom line. And I don't think that the boards themselves can really play an effective role in that as you do that. I think that there are some state models that um, bring in external people to think those things through, um, that those are good models. As you're thinking about global models, figuring out what would, where are the opportunities to do things that really are um, in the public interest to get uh, the ability. You know, it's not just, I think, what Simon's putting on the table isn't just that they're U.S. health professionals uh, treating people around the world, but that people in the United States could, could log on and get a consultation somewhere else. Well, that may well make sense for certain things, and there could be a system set up that maximizes the benefits of that, but also minimizes the risk by having an assurance or a partnership between different regulatory entities. I think that that's the right conversation to have. Um, I think that on the basis of evidence, on the basis of logic and best practice, you can pull people together. And I've seen it, and I've even seen it on very controversial issues. We actually regulated abortion uh, facilities in Maryland. And when we came out with our regulations, we had both the right to life groups and the pro-choice group saying that they thought we'd done a fair job. Um, and that was because we tried to strike a balance and we were as transparent as we could about the thinking uh, that went into that. Um, Here's where I think uh, I, I really respect uh, Jeff's position on the First Amendment and how it relates, and let me just react to that for a second. I think that, um, in general, my view is that it should be the public interest that's the real, um, you know, is, is the North Pole that the compass is aligned to. It should not be an ideological view of the First Amendment. 
And at first I thought Jeff was saying, well, look, if it's speech, that's it. We got to allow it. But then as I listened to him, I think what he was saying is it's just whether the First Amendment applies and then there may be an appropriate limiting test that's put on. I'm very familiar as a pediatrician with the case in Florida about asking about guns. And um, I do understand the, the fact that there, um, there, is, there are speech considerations. I think that if there were a way to say that um, there, you know, what is the balancing test? So I think Jeff may be focused on getting the First Amendment to apply because that's the threshold issue for him. I'm more interested in, well, what's the balancing test that you apply? How, what is the balance between uh, state regulatory agency and individuals in this regard? And I think that the balance has got to be some assessment of the public interest, whether it makes sense. I mean, I would make the case as a pediatrician, in, along with my professional association, that it can be very important to ask about gun safety for the very reasons that Jeff said. Um, and that there could be so, that the standard that would be applied is not just are they words coming out of someone's mouth, but does it make sense? On the other hand, on a, thera a therapy that has been totally uh, discredited by the profession, um, that it, uh, such as reparative therapy, which has essentially no um, uh, support within organized and evidence-based medicine, that uh, the public interest wouldn't would would favor a regulation in that area. So, for me, I could see that the, there is a yardstick that could be done. That it's not so much. Um, whether the First Amendment applies or not, but how then you would apply an appropriate test so that you get regulation that maximizes the benefits to the public and minimizes the risks. And I think um, probably if we were all to sit down, even though we may come from different ideological parts of the spectrum, we probably could work out that it's totally reasonable for someone to be sending cat advice to um, uh, someplace in the world to help cats and something else might not be reasonable at all and how do we draw that balance or what would be the process that could draw lines that would um, lead uh, to better health, um, lower costs and uh, a um, interesting uh, progress as technology evolves in healthcare. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you, Josh. Thank you to uh, to all the speakers. I think those are all great presentations. Gave us a lot to think about. I want to open up to questions now. Let me take the opportunity to ask a first one to so just start getting yours ready. I think this question, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, Renee, and the others are feel feel free to answer it too. But I think this question may be mostly for you, Renee, and I, I don't know to what extent you you've thought about this, but. So, you know, as I think both Josh and Jeff alluded to, I mean, there are international aspects to this, and obviously that's what I wrote about as well. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, as, as we all know, the United States is not the only country in the world. Other countries are, are aware of this, too, and are doing things, too. Renee, do you know, um, you know, are, are there other examples of, of what, uh, you know, the European Union is doing, what China is doing? What are other countries doing with this? It just seems to me eventually somebody is going to be trading these services internationally. If we're going to put up, if the U.S. is going to put up barriers, well, we're going to be the only one. Then everyone else is going to go ahead with this in some way. Do you have any sense of what the rest of the world is doing with this right now? Yeah, a little bit. I think we're all sort of in the same boat. A lot of this is new. Or we're wrestling with a lot of clinical, political, and other issues as well. I will say, for example, in the EU, licensure follows where the physician is located, which seems to make more sense and which facilitates um, the, the greater, um, uh, greater access to care, obviously, because uh, uh, physicians don't have to worry about being licensed where the patient is located. Um, but a lot of other areas have not yet had the sort of the fully developed regulatory approach the United States has. Now, one thing I will say is that sometimes I tell my clients, have you thought about starting this somewhere else outside the United States? 
where you have fewer regulations to worry about, where you have fewer political considerations. I mean, we, 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 we heard about the board, and I think, Dr. Sharpstein, I think you, you sort of alluded to this. There is some protectionist bent to some of these boards as well. Um, uh, so I think we're generally all in the same boat, but I would, I would say that given the way our laws are, um, the way our laws are enacted, the way the regulations are promulgated, um, the sub-regulatory guidance we have both at the federal and state level, um, all the various boards that you have to deal with if you have a regional and national network you have in mind and wanted to want to develop, it's hard to do in the United States. Um, let me open it up to, to questions now. So uh, a couple instructions. Please wait to be called on. Or raise your hand if you have a question. Wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room and the audience can watching online can hear the question and announce your name and affiliation. So with that, um, any, any questions? I have one. See one. My name is Li Yang. Thanks for all the wonderful presentation. But the question now is how are you going to do or what should, you, what should be done in the medical sector or in the public citizens' campaign? One is like um, hacking or maybe just manipulation of equipment or uh, internet or some kind of obstruction, basically. And they heard medicine. Patience, okay, and then you have a regulation, but currently there's also a trend, and as I said, maybe even more related to the fraud, that kind of operation, and they are now promote, promote the occupation without examination. What they call now is a com competency, which is very, abstract and very broad and maybe very subjective. And then further is that if the people complain to the government agencies and they ignore the complaint really, and what they say is that they are not in the best interest of the public. So how are you going to regulate the government agency rather than in the professional or health care? Go ahead, Josh. Sure. So I, uh, to, to your first point about security, I think that's extremely important, and I think that is a potential role for a regulatory standard, because even if you could work it all out that there's a great dermatologist in you know, Germany who is perfect for your kind of rash, and everybody believes it's appropriate to do over, you know, and then, but suddenly, you know, you're uh, you know, um, www.simonsrash.com shows up on the internet and there's all your pictures because it's been stolen. That's not a good outcome at all. And so um, there, I do think that one of the things that is very important is for there to be very strong security standards and the enforcement of those standards so that everybody who's participating is at least, you know, able to have some level of competence about privacy. I think that that's a really good point. The issue about um, medical boards jobs are very hard and boards in general jobs are very hard because... Um, some of the things are very easy. There's something that's just been horribly done, you know, horribly wrong, and there needs to be a clear discipline or even someone losing their license. But a lot of them are in a gray area, and um, it's very important for uh, boards to be as prompt as possible, uh, be able to at least, you know, as 
at a certain level, be transparent about its approach to different issues. Um, and then usually there's recourse to the courts if boards don't do, you know, for, for both the provider and for the patient. In, in the case of a totally uh, egregious decision, occasionally the courts will pick that up. But there is enormous authority, and it, I've seen very unhappy practitioners who felt they were being untreated, uh, treated unfairly by the board, and very unhappy patients who felt like they were mistreated and the board didn't really listen to them. And, you know, as the health secretary, I couldn't get involved in every case. And you have to, to appoint very good people. You have to try to orient them as well as possible. Um, it's sort of like a, you know, a judge has to make a tough decision sometimes, and then there's an appeal. And in this case, you have to think about the board being run well, as well as there being some opportunity in certain circumstances for appeals. Do you know anything about the security issues, Renee? No, I think, I mean, the security issues are very important, but I, but I think we have other laws and other requirements. I mean, the EU has an incredibly sophisticated privacy and security regime. So I, 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 while security is an important issue, I think they're addressed in the myriad of privacy and security laws that most developed countries have. Other questions in the, in the back? Uh, I see start with the way back, and then there are a couple in front and nearby. My name is Kyle Gibson. I'm a former uh, in Cato intern um, working with Simon. I think I see Bill in the audience. Um, happy and pleased to see that this uh, issue has been brought to life uh, through Simon's work. Um, when I was doing research on this, a lot of the, the biggest challenge seemed to be licensing within states to practice medicine. Uh, my question is open to the panel. Uh, if the day comes in which uh, you know, licensing is eliminated per states to practice across state laws. Do you see this phenomenon spilling over to under, other industries? So what I'm thinking is the practicing of law. Um, right now I'm doing research on mobile banking in Africa, and um, there are similar regulations prohibiting, I guess, the, the flow of commerce between countries um, and even between banks. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks. Yeah, so does this set a precedent for other industries? Yeah. Um, we can start over there. If you want. So, um, yes, the, it, it, if the First Amendment applies to occupational speech, which, which it should, um, then it will be a precedent that applies outside the context of medicine. But as, as Josh was suggesting, how it applies will be a little bit different. And, you know, the, the particular test that we would use in the First Amendment likely, although, I, you know, I don't know, would be something like the test for commercial speech, which recognizes that there's a substantial interest, constitutional interest that should be protected, but maybe it's not as big a constitutional interest as in other contexts, for example, pure political speech. So what would this mean? Um, in the context of medicine, you would expect there to be reasonably robust protections because an appendicitis in Florida is the same thing as an appendicitis in Alaska. But on the other hand, Florida and Alaska actually have some different laws, and they might actually have some different banking laws that are peculiar or different real estate laws for, for whatever reason. Um, and so the, the kind of teleoccupational regulation that will exist, even in a context in which the First Amendment applies, will allow for the kind of flexibility that, that Josh is describing, I think, um, but it should apply to just about everything. Like financial services seems huge. That should be there. The practice of law, frankly, is something that is big. Psychology and, and maybe life coaching and diet um, and nutrition, those are the kinds of things people can actually do from a distance, and they could do much more cheaply, much more conveniently if it were possible to do it across state lines. Let me just clarify that I do support 
medical licensure by state. And the reason is there's a strong history of medical licensure by state. In Maryland, we did a lot to improve the function of the medical board. There's some terrific doctors who are serving on it, and they did a great job um, clearing a backlog and taking much more rapid action while they were expanding procedural safeguards for doctors. It's a really hard thing. It goes to my previous question. And I think that it has credibility in part because it's relatively local. We have experts from the University of Maryland who's on the, the chair of the board, Johns Hopkins. And, and so if you're taking someone's license away, you're doing something like that, it helps for there to be an internal um, credibility within the community about, about the fact that it's the medical profession doing it. It's not some you know, external, national, global board of doctors. It's actually a local board. So I, I think that getting the boards right is correct. What the relationship between boards are and the kind of compacts that Renee talked about and the expansion of those, I think that would be the right area to pursue. I would say that as you think about a limiting, you know, how you approach policy judgments, I do, I would afford a lot of um, importance in the need for uh, the people to be licensed for where they are taking care of patients. And I see this different a little bit than the case of the veterinarian, because the case of the veterinarian, it's about um, sort of the, the definition of how to practice. You know, you should have to do a visit before you do something. I mean, those sorts of things, I think, are like, you know, trying to regulate the practice within a place that you're doing it. Whether or not I think there's an appropriate role for the First Amendment or other things to say, actually, you don't need to get licensed in this other state anyway. I would probably have much more of a concern about that because I think that there is a huge public health value to having um, well-run medical boards in, uh, at the state level. But I, I see that as a little different than the case of what is under the jurisdiction of the board and how the board may be going about its work within a state in a protectionist That's way. That's true, although just as, as, a, as a quick response, as a constitutional lawyer, the mere fact that free speech rights are inconvenient to the government is not a justification for ignoring them. Like, the Constitution is the foundational document, and our free speech rights are foundational. And even if they create what might be su like a suboptimal regulatory state, that actually may be what a free country tolerates. And I appreciate that. As a pediatrician, <laughs> as a pediatrician, I would say, I gave a speech at one point in a law school where I said, um, I'm familiar with the argument that the, you know, the Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact when it comes to terrorism. I would say the First Amendment is not a suicide pact when it comes to public health. Fair enough. Did you want to weigh in on it? The, the, the only sort of talking about the boards, it, aren't most boards complaint-driven, doctor? Number one, um, a lot of boards are underfunded, number two. So the question I always have is, are the boards the best way to regulate the practice of medicine, given those two things I've just mentioned? You know, I, I think that the question is, they, certainly um, there are boards that are underfunded. And I think you could look at a lot of front page stories to say that they're not doing as good a job, a number of them, that, as they could do. It's complicated to think of how you would do better other than to improve boards like we were able to do, I feel like, in Maryland and, and in other places. Um, because of the local nature of medicine and the history that's there. I mean, I, it, I guess in this respect, maybe I'm the more conservative person on the panel. And that, like, you know, I would be careful about throwing out, you know, 
more than a century of regulation at the, at the state level, unless you really had a sense of what you would do, do people really want one group, you know, hearing all these cases within, um, you know, it, and, and it is true, though, that there are local standards of care um, for certain things. And so, you know, it... I, but aren't those, not to interrupt you, but aren't yeah. those disappearing over time? Um, I, that's probably a debatable proposition. I think there are people who would like to see some of the differences disappear, but it may be that, um, you know, if you have a board that has their, you know, their group of experts in a particular field from one part of the country, they don't realize that there's a unique, different kind of disease or history or treatment or wariness or something that's going on somewhere else. And, you know, I think that it's... I. I have written about the flaws of medical boards, so I mean, I'm not in any way trying to defend them. On the other hand, it's not that easy to think of a national medical board that would be able to do that much better, I think. Let's uh, open up to other questions. I see a couple in the, the back there, maybe the, the guy closest to you, and then the one in front of him, and then the one over to the right. Hi, Steve Chisholm with the Chisholm Group. Thanks for the Cato Institute. Great work. I enjoyed the panel, but my question may not be particularly germane. I was thinking about the VA healthcare system, the Veterans Affairs, Veterans Affairs Medical System, and they're, they're trying to talk about telemedicine and doing some things that this would be at the federal level, but obviously it would affect the First Amendment. I'm, I'm, I'll admit to being an attorney. And the, but it will also be done at the local level, particularly with rural veterans. I mean, it's a major issue in the, in the country right now. I wonder if the panel may opine about that. Anyone know anything about that issue? Sure. I, I think that, it, you know, there are parts of the country that are in desperate need of access to care. Veterans are uh, particularly um, in need of uh, mental health care and other types of services that aren't available in all places. And one of the things that comes up, for example, in the mil military medicine and Veterans Administration is whether it makes sense to, um, uh, you, you, you know, what you have both huge gaps in access to care and quality problems at certain places. And can you, is there a strategy that involves more telemedicine that could address both of those at once? And uh, I think that all those are very fair policy questions. And in the end, the question is, are people healthier? And can you design something to really serve the needs of veterans? That should be the, um, you know, the litmus test, um, not some arbitrary measure of speech, but are veterans getting healthier? And I, I think this brings up another issue, which is sometimes I think we take a one-size-fits-all approach. It's just telemedicine. But I think we can all agree, for example, in telemental health care, you don't really need to lay hands on patients to be effective. It's really about communication. I would think that for subspecialties like that, telemedicine is a great fit. And ought we not to treat that differently than telecardiology or something else? Yeah. So maybe we ought to start thinking about this in a more sophisticated way as opposed to just one size fits all and everything fits under this umbrella of telemedicine. Right, and it's certainly true that doctors can say things to patients short of an actual diagnosis and implementation of treatment. So Ron Hines, for example, one of the things he did is that people would write him and say, I've been to two different veterinarians. They have given me two different diagnoses. And could you just look at the files and just kind of give me your opinion and we can talk through it. Help me make a decision because I have to make a decision. And Ron is the kind of person who's got a great deal of experience in that and can help out. And, you know, with respect to people who are in, in rural areas, one of the things that Ron got in trouble for 
is that there was, a, there was an impoverished double amputee in Maine who was living by himself, and the only thing he had was his beloved dog. And his dog was sick, and his dog was dying. And Ron was talking this guy through certain things to, to help alleviate his dog's suffering. And eventually, Ron found a veterinarian in Maine who would treat the, the dog for free for this um, amputee. And another veterinarian heard about that, that Ron Hines in Texas had been providing some initial help to this over the phone and reported Ron Hines for doing that. And that is just like pure economic protectionism. There, there, no rational person would say that this, guy, this impoverished double amputee who's not going to a veterinarian, who's getting some free help from a guy in Texas, that that should be stopped. It was, it's ludicrous. But anyway, that's, you know, that's one of the things that happens and one of the reasons why we need to have a rational telemedicine regime. Uh, another question uh, right there. Hi, I'm Pat Michaels from Cato. Uh, this probably goes to Dr. Sharstein, but maybe to the panel in general. And it has to do with um, the complexity of the ultimate regulatory regime that we're going to have. I can see, uh, to maybe differ with you on the car uh, remote cardio, if you put a Holter monitor, heart monitor on a person, mm -hmm. and they showed some frank arrhythmia, some remote physician can read that and make a reasonable diagnosis and proper prescription without seeing the person. However, if you show up with some kind of maybe substantial skeletal pain syndrome to a, an orthopedic person, you're going to have to be examined because you can't remotely do the manipulations that are required in order to come to a reasonable prospective diagnosis. Now, where this question is leading is it seems to me uh, given these differential regulatory possibilities, that we may wind up with uh, a group of folks having to go through the entire diagnostic code manual uh, to decide which one requires a personal visit and which one does not. And that will entail all kinds of special interests getting in on this. How do we prevent this from becoming 10,000 pages of regulations that nobody understands? Hmm. <laughs> it sounds like you've seen those regulations on some other issues, I'm guessing, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking so, of, um, I'm thinking yeah, of yeah. A, a person, famous person from MIT. So um, I think that you're asking a very, very good question, which is, and, and this is partly about the, the approach to regulation. How do you strike a balance that's not such a kind of jerry-rigged balance that it's impossible to actually apply, and it just makes things frustrating for literally everyone. And that can happen as part of regulation. I think, you know, there are um, organizations that their expertise is in trying to cut through very complicated issues and come up with very clear guidelines. Examples would be compensation programs that get set up for, you know, um, military, former military members who been exposed to certain things, what are the criteria? Well, you could go through, you know, you could come up with the, the most complicated flowchart in the world, or you could come up with basic criteria that are fair and reasonable and able to be applied. Um, the Institute of Medicine, of which I'm a member, does this a lot. They take very thorny questions, and they say, we need to come up with a regime for doing this that is implementable and reasonable. They'll bring together people across an issue. They, and then they'll say, this is an approach that would be in the public interest. And nothing's perfect, but this is the best we think we can do. And so you have to charge, in my opinion, it's not a, I used to think a lot at the state about 
stakeholder groups versus expert groups. And people say, oh, we're going to get a stakeholder group together, and it's going to have 25 people on it, and each one of them is going to go back and check with their own group, right? That, that would be, um, I'm, people would say to me when I would hear about this that, like, your, your next career is not as professional professional poker player, Josh, because I would make a face just like you. I'd be like, oh, no, you know, how are we ever going to get to a reasonable process, maybe outcome, even one that people could live with if everyone feels beholden to their individual group. On the other hand, if you set up an expert group, which can have a lot of public input and public participation in, but people aren't representing their group and they're given a very clear charge and you've got a great person leading it, you can really get reasonable things and people just have to, you know, you're, you're striking a balance. You have to set that up. So I think it can be done. You have to think of organizations that can do it and, and then you give them the challenge. You know, another, another possibility is that maybe we don't need a multitude of complex rules. Maybe there's actually a simple rule. And the simple rule is the doctor has to exercise professional judgment. And so, for example, in Ron Hines's case, if the animal actually, like, let's say he examines an animal, he is legally authorized to euthanize the animal. He could amputate a limb. He could perform surgery. He, can provide, he could provide powerful drugs based on his exercise of professional judgment. That's what being a Texas licensed veterinarian means. And there were plenty of instances in which he would talk to somebody via the internet, and he would say, you know what? you're presenting questions and I can't actually give you good advice because the, it, it seems to me that the nature of your problem isn't amenable to a telemedicine solution. And so you have to go see a vet. So rather than think, well, we have to enumerate every conceivable permutation of the doctor-patient relationship in order to regulate it, what we should say is when you have passed the threshold requirement of actually being a doctor, we have invested in you the authority to exercise your professional judgment then engaging in responsible telemedicine is just an extension of that authority. And that actually seems to make sense. Now, and you know, I said, I said this to the court repeatedly, that if Dr. Hines can do all of these things to an animal in person, why do you think his capacity to exercise judgment utterly disappears merely because he's having a conversation over the internet? It doesn't make any sense. There's no rational conception of a doctor and a patient in which that makes sense. The, the, the issue, though, is that where the regulation is going to happen. So let's say that the animals were in another state. He's taking, he's charging for the rec advice that he's giving. Just but but the other state uh, the, the, has ba basically no ability inside that state to challenge any problem if there were a serious problem. Yeah. And so th th there, there's at least a, I think, a clear risk to consumer protection if you were to say. You're a doctor in Maryland. You can give it's up to you, your judgment, whatever advice you want to give, medical advice, prescriptions, anything, on any topic. Because you know my license is I can take care of big people, as we call adults in pediatrics. You know, and and um, uh, and then it's all back on the Maryland Medical Board, where they can't very easily go out to somewhere else to evaluate the care or see what's actually going on. That strikes me as a framework that could be quite yeah. risky to consumers. Although, although you might have, you know, there's this sort of general concept of the law that if you enter someone's jurisdiction and you do things that are tortious, then you can be held responsible in that jurisdiction. So it seems to me if we had these kind of compacts where we recognized reasonable interjurisdictional practice, and you would say that if I'm, a, if I'm a doctor in Texas and I'm talking to somebody in Maryland, mm -hmm. then by virtue of this compact or just by operation of general principles of jurisdiction, if I say something or do something that results in harm to the patient there, I've, I've just subjected myself to the jurisdiction of that board, and I can be disciplined or, or do whatever. 
Um, it, it just, you know, and I, I don't know how to work it. You're like, you're the yeah. expert in that area, yeah. but I just mean that the, the thing that struck me about the vet licensing case and the general approach to telemedicine is that we trust physicians to exercise reasonable judgment in the in-person context. And I don't know why we're terrified of them being able to exercise similar reasonable judgment in the telemedicine context. They're still grown adults. They still have medical licenses. Although I, I yeah. understand the, co the complexities that it presents. Right, and you're conflating, I don't want to go too far, but I think there are two things you have to tease apart. There's, you know, if it were all within the same state, you know, I would be very much, 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 much closer to your position. It's when you split the jurisdiction, make it harder for people who could be harmed to, you know, for the, I think you wind up with a potential for a policy failure there. Um, I think another question, sort of the middle back. Yeah, uh, Wes Cooper-Smith from Generation Opportunity. Um, a lot of the telemedicine um, regulation we're talking about could be construed um, over interstate commerce, right? It's one uh, physician from one state talking to a patient from another state. So should states be allowed legally to regulate that type of commerce? Any of you know? Turn over the constitutional lawyer and the 10th Amendment and all those issues. Yeah, I mean... So the, the, que the question is whether or not when a state is attempting to regulate the movement of medical advice, for example, or some kind of occupational advice across state lines, what does the dormant commerce doctrine, which says that states can't create unreasonable barriers to interstate commerce, what does that have to say? Um, it's not actually a very popular doctrine among the Supreme Court. The, the, it hasn't been very clearly litigated, and there, there is actually some, there, there, was a, there is some federal appellate law that says that what the Dormant Commerce Clause is really worried about is the movement of goods. And if it's just cash or advice, that may not actually, now, that may not actually be something moving in interstate commerce. It's, it's probably not tenable, um, and there will probably be disagreements about it. But as I understand it, the telemedicine problem hasn't been considered primarily as an interstate commerce problem, although it strikes me that that kind of thing will ultimately be litigated. I'm sorry, I can't give you a good answer. I mean, the right answer in constitutional law is always maybe. And so I don't know. The, I, I can't give you a definitive answer. We got a couple more questions. I, I saw the guy in the fourth row there, I think. <clears throat> One over there. I see the podium was blocking me. We'll get to her next. Okay. Uh, Victor Rotzi, Institute for Justice. Uh, this is principally aimed at Dr. Sharfstein, but, you know, please do weigh in as you see fit. Uh, is it remotely realistic to expect any sort of regulation of telemedicine to to be in, to be enforceable? I mean, I, I see a host of problems in, you know, if we set up this vast regulatory framework, assuming that there will ever be a consensus on it uh, in which, uh, you know, you, you would have you'd have to record, for instance, Skype conversations with your doctor or, you know, I, I see like nightmare scenarios where state medical boards are partnering with the NSA to, you know, get uh, get data and uh, be able to regulate that way. So I I just wonder, I mean, how exactly could how, how exactly could any regulatory framework around telemedicine really ever be enforced? Sure. Well, um, I could you know, see your nightmare scenario and raise you another nightmare scenario, but I won't, I won't, I won't do that. You can you have a lot of discussions where you're trading nightmare scenarios. I think Renee laid out a framework that 
and I'd be interested in his view about whether it could uh, work if it were picked up. So you have compacts where people can um, see patients across states. If that uh, were something that were to be facilitated, then people could see patients across states and the enforcement would come that if somebody stepped across the line, did something that was wrong, there'd be a complaint. The medical board would then be able to um, take action. You know, and wouldn't, I don't think that there's any necessity that there be some kind of crazy amount of surveillance or anything else. Most, most things are done by, um, you know, the, you, people, doctors have an obligation to take medical records just like they do in the in-person in requirement, uh, in-person medical practice. And if, um, you know, I, I was the patient, you were the doctor in another state in one of these compacts, and I felt that there was a problem, um, I would explain it and then people would look at your records just like they do in any medical board case and have to make a decision. It might be a hard one to make, but then you'd have a framework because you'd be licensed both in your own state and in my state, and the process would play itself out. I don't know. Well, I think that the thing with compacts everybody has to remember is you're only as strong as how many states are actually part of the compact. Right. And so what you find in the nurse licensure compact, great idea, it's actually a very simple process. You're licensed in one compact state. You're deemed to be licensed in the other compact states. Some exceptions apply. The problem there is if you look at the map of who is part of the compact, a lot of your biggest states are not. And so you're left with a situation where a lot of your least populous states are members of the compact and your biggest states are not. Right. And if you look at the folks who have the states that have uh, – decided to be part of the physician licensure compact. It's states like, I think it's West Virginia, one of the Dakotas, Idaho. Uh, California's not going to do it anytime soon. Texas is not going to do it anytime soon for all kinds of reasons. Right. So compacts solve part of the problem, but again, they're only as good as how many states are actually part of the compact. Right. Well, I think if this were, you know, an easy problem to solve, Simon wouldn't be spending, you know, his time on it. I mean, there's the question of how easy it is to get it done. And then the question of whether it would work if you could get it done. So it's not going to be that easy to get rid of state medical boards either. But while you're in the system of state medical boards, the fact that there are some efforts moving forward, it could be that that is the, the, the most likely, even though they're all somewhat less likely, way to overcome the professional problems that we're talking about. And I don't, and I don't get a sense that there's, a, there's heavy support for a national licensure system, a federal licensure system Either. on the Hill. In fact, it's a non-starter for yeah. um, a lot of folks. So I think I've been missing a question over there on the left podium, so I can go, let's get to Thank that you. question now. Hi, my name is Nicole Ross. I'm a reporter with WMAL Radio and the Isaac Daniel Report. I apologize, I cannot stand up. I'm kind of swimming in equipment over here. Um, I have two questions. The first, I'll direct to Dr. Sharfstein and whoever else would like to chime in on the panel. Um, if we can talk about the impact on healthcare jobs that um, telemedicine will ultimately have. Um, you can talk about how, on one hand, there's a shortage of physicians. On the other hand, uh, telemedicine is clearly moving toward remote monitoring. Um, who will be monitoring um, all that data? And it's not necessarily a full-time physician. So um, I'll start with that question. It's a great question, um, but I don't think my professional training gives me a great answer to it because I'm not an economist. I do think there are obviously going to be um, uh, implications. I guess what I would say is that 
you can look at the country and see a mismatch between need and resources for medical services. And the goal would be, with a good telemedicine program, would be to adjust, address that mismatch so that you could get more services to people who need it in the end get better health. That probably would allow some more flexibility for where people could live. Um, but in terms of what that would do to physician workforce in different places, I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, no. I mean, I think it's fair to say it would be pretty disruptive, and I think you know maybe your, your view of it depends on what you think about disruptions. And, and many of us, including me, love to have the economy disrupted and, and have the consumer have consumers benefit uh, from that. But I do understand that there are other people who are you know maybe more concerned about you know disruptions to to people's work lives. Um, you had a second question. Yes, yeah, second question. Um, this will be towards uh, director the first speaker. But again, if anyone else wants to chime in, that'd be fine. Um, the Federation of State Medical Boards changed their definition of telemedicine in April to include video teleconferencing, but not audio-only phone conversation. I'm wondering, I mean, how much weight does that hold, um, if that matters, and uh, the degree to which people can't, again, agree on a definition and how that might impact patient care. The definition of, you're, you're absolutely right, in the, uh, the model policy, um, they redefined telemedicine and left audio only out. Um, a lot of states have their own definitions of telemedicine, and a lot of them don't include audio only. So I think th the FSMB definition was not a surprise at all. The definition is only important in that uh, the FSMB model policy um, addresses telemedicine, so anything that falls outside of that, the, the rest of the model policy does not apply. I think if you talk to a lot of folks... Um, a lot of folks will tell you that patients, some t a lot of patients prefer phone. It's more convenient. Um, it's much more accessible to them. Uh, you don't need broadband. Um, and a lot of employers will tell you that when they give the choice to their employees as to whether or not they want to receive services by phone or by audio video, a lot of them choose phone because of the convenience uh, factor. Now, having said all that, I, I think... Even the, some of my clients who are in the business will tell you you can't do everything by phone. And there are certain things that physicians will not do by phone, will refer you back to your primary care physician. And, and so the phone can solve everything, but I think uh, the people I speak to, the people I represent, the employers I talk to, would like a more expanded definition of telemedicine to include audio only. Now, having said audio only, that doesn't mean the physician doesn't have access to the patient's medical record, a questionnaire. That the, so they, in other words, it's not just a cold phone call without any other information. I think maybe we have time for one more question. I see somebody ignoring this side. Let me. Thank you, Jeff Perlman, just a lawyer off the street. Uh, doctor, you indicated that uh, you, uh, you supported Mr. Rowe's positions on, on uh, consumer affairs, I guess, so long as it was limited to one state. I think that's what I understood you to say. So is it true that if I live on Western Avenue, which is the borderline between Maryland and, and D.C., anything that happens anywhere in the district, if I want to call, uh, if I'm the veterinarian and I get a call from the amputee, that it's okay for me to answer yet if my friend of 40 years who's also an amputee lives across the street in Maryland, and I cross the street to answer his question about his dog, that the uh, the suggestion by Mr. Rose that, that 
that could result in, in a uh, – that could be resolved by a, uh, a cause of action in tort law, that wouldn't be adequate – uh, that's not an adequate sure. so, uh, um, I, I understand the question. I appreciate it. I think, you know, first of all, what I, my, my main point, I think that there, it's a different issue within the state versus between states. And I think my, I think that to the extent that what Jeff is saying is that there is a, a First Amendment issue in, in a doctor-patient relationship and that it needs to be balanced in different ways, I think we're pretty close on that. Um, as you get across the, um, across jurisdictions, then it, it has a lot to do with enforcement. And of course, the case you're talking about is probably, uh, we're also talking about charging, I would imagine, that you're not just walking across the street because you're doing it. You're, so somebody is actually getting paid for something. And, you know, I, I don't think it's in all the balancing, it's that much of an imposition for someone to get licensed in more than one place. And I think that the value of that is that they get judged um, according to the system that we've had in this country for a long time for regulating uh, professionals in a, in, in a certain area. I see value in that. And just sort of, um, I, I don't think that the fact that there are always going to be cases that are across the street whenever you're talking about any law. You know, is it fair that you can do one thing in one state and another thing you can't do right across the street? Well, that's just how the way the law works. It's the same thing here that, you know, if you believe there's a value to allowing um, local regulation of medical practice, which I do believe, then you have to live with the borders that are reflected in that. And I think that if it were just in a crazy and surmountable hurdle, I would have chest pain with that. It really isn't. And if you're literally living on the line, you should be probably licensed in both places. I think <clears throat> I should point out that I, the last I heard, I think it's the FSMB numbers, only 6% of physicians are licensed in three or more states. So while we're talking about this sort of new innovative uh, movement that seems underway, most practice is still local. And I guess the question then becomes, as we become more, as we're, we're an increasingly mobile society, the question is, are the numbers so low because of all the administrative burdens with having to apply for a license? It's costly. Or is it because, again, it reflects the reality of medicine on the ground, that it's mostly local? With that, I apologize. I think we have to wrap things up. Um, we're going to go adjourn for lunch on the second floor. Maybe the panelists can join us. So if you have other questions, you know, feel free to join us up there, see if you can accost them. Um, let me thank the, the panelists. Let's give them a round of applause. That was a, an excellent panel. I, I enjoyed it very much. Hope you did, too.